Feels like I should be news broadcasting or something with that there. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with a simple request that anything we do to try to secure it would be, would be utterly futile, and yet you do this by your power. We pray that you would create your people, call your people together through your word. Lord, your word is the most powerful force in all of the universe. You create by your word, you save by your word, you call into being that which is not into being by your word. So, Lord, we pray that amongst us who are, especially those who are just not alive at all spiritually, Lord, call them to yourself. Call all of us to love and treasure Christ more. We pray that your spirit would work through your word to give it life and power that we would respond with faith and obedience and repentance, trusting in you, believing your your promises, knowing that you are good no matter what trials and difficulties we walk through, holding out the promise of eternal life to us. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray you would use it to create life and call us together as your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are beginning a new series on the book of well, the books, two books, two letters, first and second Timothy. And that means why that's really significant for us is that we're actually going to be in the New Testament. That's that part that's towards the end of your Bible, the last third or so. We haven't been in the New Testament for about seven months. We've looked at nice, friendly books like Leviticus and Judges. And then Ruth, which is a beautiful story, right? And I just want to say something to commend you and thank you briefly here. And that is that throughout the seven months that we've been looking at Old Testament books, particularly hard Old Testament books, I received nothing but just encouraging feedback. Never once did anybody say anything like, why can't we be in the New Testament? And that was preaching through some pretty tough stuff. It was tough for me to prepare at times. And I know it was not always easy for you. I mean, some of the passages in Judges, I saw you squirming in your seats. and can't believe this is what we're going through. And yet, I think you understood what Jonathan Master talked about last week, and that is that there is value in hearing from the whole counsel of God's word, not just from the parts that are sunny or we like, and and therefore you received it. You received it well. I just want to say thank you for that. It was a joy preaching to you as I went through some tough stuff, but I knew that you would want to hear it. Not all pastors have that experience. I I talked to one pastor, and he said... uh, I asked, how would, how would you preach through Leviticus? And he said, as fast as possible. <laughs> and partly, you know, pastors have their preferences, but they also said their congregations wouldn't handle it. And I'm glad that that's not the kind of church that I'm preaching to. I'm glad you want the whole counsel of God's word. And I appreciate that. So thank you. That said, we are finally in the New Testament, because that too is part of God's word. And we're looking at the letters of First and Second Timothy. We're going to do them together because they are uh, a unit here. And these are letters that Paul wrote to a pastor in Ephesus. It's a small uh, a Greek city in modern-day Turkey. He, he wrote these letters to Timothy, who was a pastor there, giving instruction. Today, we're only going to look at the first two verses... It's not much material there. It's just the introduction of the letter. But 
as we look at the introduction of the letter, Paul's introduction of the letter, it will serve as an introduction for the whole book. Uh, the introduction that Paul writes to, the, 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 to Timothy will be our introduction to the whole thing. And we'll use these first two verses as windows, uh, lenses through which we'll see major themes in the whole book. So here is how the letter begins. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Look at, I'll read the first two verses to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, first thing I want us to notice here, and, that's, and it's critical to the letter overall, is how personal Paul has, or how much of Paul has a, has a personal relationship with Timothy here. Timothy is Paul's true child in the faith. It's likely that Timothy became a Christian under Paul's ministry. Perhaps he was young then, maybe a teenager. And yet Paul has been something of a spiritual father to him as he has grown up. In the next letter, 2 Timothy, we'll see, Paul says to to, um, Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Well, that's a, a father's heart, isn't it? How he, he, he was disconnected from his child. Maybe, maybe you are fa- some of you are fathers or parents and your children live far away. You know that feeling of caring deeply for them and wanting to see them. Or maybe you are the, the children who have been separated from your father or mother. And you can understand something of what that is like. Paul loves this, this man. And he treats him as if he's his own child. Paul We have no evidence in Scripture has any children. He's not married. But his relationship with Timothy is in some ways even greater than if he had had a biological child. Because Timothy is his true child in the faith. And this is just an example for how Christianity changes the values and priorities that we would have. I mean, think about it. The world values family connections, doesn't it? I mean, the tie of blood. You watch out for your family, right? There's a level of closeness which you have with your family, and there's some ways where you're you know, hands out to prevent anybody else from getting in that close place to your family. That's kind of the way the world would ordinarily work. Now, the Bible, though, it values family to be sure, and we'll see uh, about that as we get through this book. But the Bible also says that that spiritual bond can be even stronger than the bond of blood. We can have children in the faith, parents in the faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, that that can be an extremely close bond that ties us together. Paul didn't have any children of his own, as I said, but all indications is he's not disappointed by that. He doesn't feel lacking something because he's pouring his life into his spiritual children, his children of the faith. Friends, that's a lesson for us. We ought not be surprised when we are pouring our lives into other people within the church. And we find ourselves growing with great affection for one another in the faith. That ought not to surprise us, and it actually ought to mark us as a church. That's what we ought to do. Let me ask you, who are in your life? Who in your life are you pouring yourself into? Who are the... the, the children in the faith that you are nurturing, nourishing, regularly praying for? Who are you grieved about 
when they are not following the Lord as they are called to? And who are you putting yourself under that you may grow? Who's your Timothy? Who's your Paul? I feel like I know something of this, of what Paul's talking here from firsthand experience, especially as the way in which this is addressed to a pastor. I know that I am a young-ish pastor. I was younger before and still somewhat now, but I knew, especially as a young-ish pastor, that coming into the first church that I was going to be the senior pastor for, I was going to need help. And it's not a slight on the church at all. I knew that even before I knew anything about the church, that, that I would need help uh, doing this. So one of the very first things I did is I reached out to Jonathan Lehman, who many of you know, and just said, help. <laughs> I'm coming into a church. I, I didn't really know him at the time, but I knew of him, and I knew he lived close by. and said, would you help me understand how to be a pastor here? And then a friendship developed, and and he's been here several times, and I've grown from him. And that's just an example of what that means to, to be pouring into somebody else. I'm, I've benefited from that. You've then benefited from him benefiting me uh, as I've been trained up in that way. And if you were to talk to Jonathan Lehman, you would find, as he gives you advice, he is referring to other people who have poured into him. See how it goes? It's this cycle. That's what Christian discipleship is. That's how maturity in the church happens. It happens through relationships where one person builds into another person and they grow. In Paul's next letter to Timothy, we'll see Paul telling Timothy, take these things that I've taught to you and teach them to faithful people who will teach it to others. Notice there, Paul has three generations in view. Paul is, or three levels, you could say. Paul is handing things off to Timothy, and Paul is saying to Timothy, now you hand these things, these truths, off to other people who will hand them off to others. See how it works? The church works by discipleship. That's God's plan for how we grow as Christians. So, friends, if there aren't people in your life who you are close to, who you are growing from, don't expect to grow as a Christian. That's God works through the relationships. Yes, we have his word, and his word is sufficient. But nowhere in Scripture do we see the lone ranger Christian by themselves with their Bible as if that's the only thing they need. No, God uses his word in the context of relationships to help us grow. So, again, I ask you, who are you pouring your life into? And who are you opening up your life that they would help you grow? Well, it is quite evident that Paul, in writing this letter, is trying to help his young son in the faith grow. And I think the best way for me to introduce this letter to you is to imagine what Timothy might have written or communicated to Paul that would have provoked Paul to write this sort of letter. Now, please understand, we don't have a letter in our possession from Timothy to Paul. We only have Paul's letter to Timothy. Nevertheless, based on the contents of this letter, of Paul's letter to Timothy, we could imagine what it might have been that Timothy had written Paul asking for help. So, I'm going to read a, a letter that could be something of what Paul, what Timothy wrote to Paul. And I actually got this idea from a pastor named Thabidi Anawile, who, by the way, he was a person who was used in Israel and Arlinda's life in many ways. He poured into them. So if you get spiritual benefit from them, which I know many of you do, it's because somebody else poured into them. Side note, by the way. Anyway, read, listen to a sermon from him on First Timothy, and uh, he began with a similar letter 
I've used some of his language here as well. This is what Timothy might have written to Paul. Dear Paul, I thought to write to you several times, but I just haven't had the heart to do it. I just don't know how to put into words what I've been feeling. But I have to face the reality that I'm not cut out for this. I'm not pastoral material. I don't think I have the gifts necessary for this work, at least not as the main pastor. On a team, I'm fine, but I can't do it alone. Things are a mess here in Ephesus. That's where Timothy pastored. Several men in the church, especially Hymenaeus and Alexander, are insisting that we teach people the law. And it's the law that they're coming up with. They're telling people that they're sinning if they drink alcohol. They pride themselves on the knowledge they have, but it's not true. And the funny thing is, people love to listen to it. They have a loyal following. No matter how much I try to encourage and influence them, I'm not having much success. On top of that, some people are leaving the faith altogether. It was a sad day when I realized that the very people I've spent the most time with have all left the faith. It breaks my heart to see them go. I've got my hands full with the women in the church. Some are quite immodestly dressed. How do I, as a young man, tell them to change the dress? Other women want to be the pastors of the church. I don't know why, but we seem to have a lot of women with great need, widows, single parents. I'm trying to take care of everybody, but it's more than I can handle. The young men are apathetic about spiritual things. They never pray. They come to church to flirt. I'm trying to to lead in all of this, but the older members of the church say I'm too young. Well, maybe they're right. The wealthy members of the church say they should be in charge because it's their money that supports the work. And they know how to get things done. No one seems to pay much attention to the elders, much less me. To top it all off, my stomach is in knots. Just the thought of gathering with the people leaves me in cold sweat. I'm just plain tired. I guess I'm writing to say I can't do this. I'm messing everything up. It's just plain killing me. Your son in the faith, Timothy. Now, I don't know how much that reflected the actual letter that... Timothy wrote to Paul, but I think I could say at least that that describes Timothy's world. That's what his world was like. What do you think about that world? Would you want to be there, pastor there in Ephesus? One of the things that struck me about his experience is how the difficulties that he's going through as a pastor are so universal. So, for instance, There's relational strain. If you read the book, there's no doubt about that. Now, there is a unique aspect of pastoral ministry that often involves strained relationships or or difficulty in relationships, but, man, I don't think that pastors are the only ones who have that experience, right? You, You probably experience some difficulty in relationships. Someone who you desperately love is doing something that's terrible for them, and you want to pull out your hair or pull out their hair or or something. And then there's a need to say hard things to people, right? Now, pastoral ministry certainly has its element of needing to say hard things. Uh, Aaron Kraft was here a few weeks ago, and I loved what he said, that pastoring is the art of awkward conversations. He has a point. It is. But I don't think pastors are the only ones who have awkward conversations. If you're trying to be godly in your workplace, in your family, you're going to have some really awkward conversations with people. And then there's the issue of physical health. Timothy had frequent ailments, stomach problems. When you're sick, everything gets harder, doesn't it? 
What I want you to see here is that Paul and Timothy get the complex difficulties we find ourselves in. They understand that we don't love God and serve others under ideal conditions. So for instance, maybe you have to answer your co-workers' objections to the Christian faith on the same day you've had a horrible fight with your spouse. Or you need to address the poor relationship between you and your son when you have a splitting headache. Or you have to say something to the church member that's discouraged when you yourself feel so discouraged. Paul and Timothy get that that's the world we live in. And Paul is not writing as a detached academic, giving giving Timothy the, the textbook answer for textbook problems. No, Paul is writing as one who has been through the fire to somebody else who's in the fire. Therefore, I have great hope that we are going to learn much from this passage. We're going to learn a lot about the church because that's the context in which this happens. And that's good for us because we all, as members of the church, need to know what the church is so we can do church rightly. But we're going to learn about the church through Paul addressing these difficult issues. It's going to teach us about our whole Christian life. Now, let's go back and look at the first two verses and see how Paul sets us up in these verses to then receive his wise counsel uh, for everything else he's going to say. How, how does Paul, when Paul's writing this introduction, how is he in this introduction framing everything that's going to come later? We're going to see two things. First, we see from this introduction that God's authority really matters. God's authority matters. Look at how this begins. Paul, and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the command of God. Apostle means one who is sent. That's what the word means, one who is sent. And Paul says, I am sent by Jesus. He is an apostle of Christ. In the book of Galatians, he, he elaborates on it a little more. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. There's this Trinitarian dimension to him being sent. He's sent by Christ. He's sent by the Father. He is sent. He is commissioned to go. And Paul, in 1 Timothy, underlines this idea by explicitly saying that he is sent according to the command of God. Notice that there. According to the command of God. He has no choice in the matter. Paul wasn't asked if he would pray about accepting this apostolic position. No, the father, the son said, go, you go and be my apostle. Now, why does Paul begin that way? Remember, I just talked about how Timothy was so close to Paul. This is a very personal letter in some ways. Paul is very personally attached to Timothy. Why does he begin with the note of God's authority? Why not say, my dear Timothy, I come to you as a dad. I come to you as a fellow servant, fellow sufferer for the sake of Christ. Why, in essence, pull his apostolic card at the very beginning of this letter to his dear son? Why pull rank, so to speak, on Timothy so early? If you read the commentaries, that's a major issue that they wrestle with. Why does Paul begin with a stronger assertion of his apostolic authority in this book than he does in, say, 1 Corinthians, where the church was doubting that Paul was a real apostle? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. As Paul pens this introduction, he knows that he's going to say some really hard things to Timothy. 
Timothy, in that letter that I, I read, tried to communicate how he's, he's suffering. He's discouraged. Paul's not going to tell him to take a sabbatical. He's not going to say, yeah, you could use some time off. Why don't you come with me, rest up, get encouragement? No. Paul's basically going to tell him, run into the burning building. He's going to tell him, you know, you're going to have to have those hard conversations with the false teachers. And guess what? Don't have any expectation that it's going to go well. He's going to say, this is life. He says in the next book, the one who desires to be godly in this life will be persecuted. Paul basically says to Timothy, yeah, it's hard. That's the job. And the best way for Paul to come to Timothy to tell him that he is bound in the service of God no matter what happens is to come to Timothy as one who is similarly bound in the service of God. I think that's why he begins how he does. Paul is saying, the Lord Jesus Christ has a claim on my life. And on the basis of the fact that he has a claim on my life, I'm calling you to recognize his claim on your life. Paul says, I am called and commissioned by Christ. In the next book, Paul is going to say, To Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ, Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And Paul begins this letter with a clear statement of him being enlisted by Christ so he can say to Timothy, look, Timothy, I'm not calling you to do anything different than I'm doing myself. As I was meditating on this concept, I couldn't help but see the analogy to parenting. So receive this as possibly encouragement in parenting or a way to understand this better. The book of Timothy actually makes the connection between pastoral ministry and parenting. So the analogy should not surprise us. Parents have to instruct their children, right? Parents have to correct their children. Parents have to call their children to do some really, really difficult things. I mean, it's it's hard growing up in the world today, isn't it? Looking at some of the young people here, and, and there's challenges. The, the, the role and the job and the call to, to live as a Christian in this world is tough. Parents have to call their children to do that. But what, what allows parents to have legitimate authority to call their children to obedience is the fact that the parents are doing that as those who are under the authority of God. See, why do they they call their children to obey? Because they like having authority over another human being? Because they get a kick out of sending their kids out into a world that they're going to have trouble with? Well, I hope not. They do it because they're called by God to do it. That's what gives them the authority to go out and do it. And Paul is saying the same thing. He is called by God, put under the authority of God, and that is why he has a legitimate reason to tell Timothy, look, you got to keep going on that fight. Stay the course. And I think that's the reason why what we see in this book overall are lots of statements about the weightiness of God, the bigness of God, the godness of God. God's sovereign authority and majestic nature loom large over this book. So, It happens particularly in the beginning and the end. Chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in the very end of the book, chapter 6, Paul says, And he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, 
who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and glory and dominion. Amen. Two statements about the supreme authority, majesty, splendor, and glory of God. Why do you think Paul wants to write that in this letter to Timothy, who's struggling, who's suffering? He doesn't need a lecture on the doctrine of God. Oh, yes, he does. Because he needs to know the weight and the majesty of this God who has commanded him to stay the course and do what he's called to do. It is God who has commanded Paul to go and preach the gospel, whatever the cost. And Paul wants to load Timothy's understanding of God with sovereign authority and majesty so that when Timothy considers the call of God on his life, he considers God rightly. And he realizes there's no choice in the matter. If God has commanded something in light of who he is, we must obey. That's the only option is to obey what God has commanded us. In other words, Paul wants God's word to have more weight in Timothy's life than his approval ratings at the church, than the perceptions of others in the community, than his failing health. And the way for God's word to have more weight than all those other things is if God has more weight than all those other things. And that is for, him, for Timothy and you and I to see him as highly exalted for who he really is. And, and that's particularly important for the kind of obedience, the flavor of obedience that, that Timothy is called to in this book. Over and over again, the call for Timothy's life is to endure, not just one act of difficult obedience and then he can rest easy. No, he's got an endurance race ahead of him. So Paul tells Timothy to, here are some of the verbs that he uses in his commands, to remain, to wage good warfare, devote yourself, keep watch, persist in these things, keep the commands of God and flee from reproach until Christ returns. This isn't a call to a one-time difficult act. This is call, a call to a life of continual obedience. A life where we're under God's authority, doing his commands, not just one time, not today, not just tomorrow, over a period of years. That's what God's called us to. Friends, what commands has God called you to that are hard in your life? And when I say commands from God, I I don't mean primarily what impressions you might have or things you might think God would want you to do. I mean primarily those things that are objectively revealed in Scripture that he has called you to do. We we can talk about what other particular vocation you might think God would want you to do, but but primarily, I mean, the things that God has called us to do in his word. Let me just read a few of those in Scripture. Here's the call of God in our life from this passage, or from the book overall. Here's the commands. Make supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving for all people. In other words, people have a prayer life consistently with God about things that matter. Live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Every way. Every way. Men, pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Women, adorn yourself with respectable apparel, with modesty. Everyone, do not be double-tongued, nor addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Train yourself for godliness. Keep 
yourself pure. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Keep the commands unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are just a sample of the commands from one book of the Bible. It's a hard, high calling that God has told us to do. And these commands require that long-term obedience. You can't say, yeah, I keep myself from reproach. I did that last week. Check. It doesn't work that way. It's a call that God has put on our life over the long haul. Friends, do you recognize that the one who calls you to do these things is none other than the sovereign Lord over all of history? He is immortal. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, what could possibly stop you from obeying this God? Is it fear of people? Is it your desire for material success? You know that obeying God's command is going to cost you something and that's not a cost you're willing to pay right now? Is it your pride? Is it your love of pleasure? What's keeping you from obeying God right now? Then I want you to ask the question, okay, what has more weight and majesty and power? That thing that is keeping you from obeying God or God? Set that which is keeping you from obeying God here and then in your mind, set God right there. What has more weight and power in your life? What is going to be around longer? The people who you want approval from or the immortal God? What has more majesty? The comfortable bank account or the majestic God? You see, if you put it like that, there really is no debate about the matter. God is more weighty and greater than anything that we would set up that would keep us from obeying him. Well, then why aren't we obeying him? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're we're glad you're here. We want this to be a, a welcoming place where you can come and learn about the Christian faith. But have you ever considered that the Bible says you will one day stand before this God in judgment, this majestic, holy God? I think deep down inside you know that you will which is why instinctively you fear death. You don't fear death because you think it might be the end. You fear death because you think it might not be the end, that you would stand before him. Well, friends, the Bible insists that God is the sovereign authority, the majestic one, lifted up higher than anything else. Because of that, we have no choice but to obey him. We must obey him. So, Number first thing we see here, number one, is that God's authority really matters. God's authority is weighty and majestic, and we have to reckon with that. Number two, Paul qualifies this. God, the God who commands also saves. The God who commands also saves. Notice how Paul immediately qualifies the nature of God here. Paul says, according to the command of God, our Savior. In Christ Jesus our hope. See that there? God is Savior. Jesus is our hope. And friends, that makes all the difference in the world as we come to obey him. 
When he says that God is Savior, he's appealing to the rich Old Testament tradition of God as the Savior of his people. And God's role as Savior of his people is defined by one huge event in the Old Testament, and that is the Exodus. God's people were enslaved, they were trapped, they were in bondage, and God delivered them. He saved them. He took them out of Egypt. And it is so clear from that event that they didn't save themselves. God was the one who sent Moses. God was the one who sent the plagues on Egypt. God was the one who made the Red Sea dry up. God sent the pillar of fire to to guide them by night and the cloud to guide them by day. God brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. God saved them. God is their Savior. And friends, God has saved us in Christ. God has saved us once again. This time it wasn't from the physical enemy. It was something far worse from the penalty of our own sin and the wrath of God that is against us. We often think of Jesus as our Savior, and indeed He is. But in the Bible, God the Father is just as much our Savior. So consider these passages. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. And Paul writes, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. Paul writes, God saved us. Not based on righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God saved us. And in this letter we read, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Friends, the one who commands us, who we must obey regardless, is also our Savior. He is our Lord and King, and He is our Savior. I wonder, does your conception of God include Him being your Savior? Some people think of God as simply you know, big and, and mighty and majestic and better, not, you know, better watch out or He might squash me. Do you understand that He is also in Christ your Savior? I submit to you that you will not ever really be able to obey him unless you know him as your Savior. See, if you don't um, know him as Savior, then you will know something of his majesty and glory. But because you also know something of your sin against him, you'll be forced to run and flee and you won't come near him. And any obedience you render him will be after you've reduced him down to a more manageable size. And thus the God you are obeying is a figment of your own imagination. But if we know him as Savior, that he he takes away the penalty of our sin in Christ, then we can approach him with boldness. We can approach him with love. We can know that in Christ his wrath will not be against us, but we will be his friend. And then we can joyfully submit ourselves to him. And Jesus is our hope. Paul writes, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the story of the Bible is that Jesus came to earth as a true human being. Then he died on the cross, receiving the penalty sufficient to pay for the sins of everyone who's ever existed. But he didn't stay dead. He rose. Think about that. Think about it in the very physicality of it. Jesus' body was put into a grave as a lifeless, dead body. If you've ever been around a dead body, it doesn't move. It has no life. It's person but not a person at the same time. Jesus' body is placed in the grave, lifeless, but then it is infused with life. 
He comes out of the grave. He rises again. And he has a body that will never die. And Jesus is our hope because when he returns, he will make us fully like him. When he returns, all those who have believed in him will rise from the dead. They will be woken from their death. Their bodies will come out of the grave just like his. Friends, if you want the strangest thing that Christians believe, it's not our creation story. It's not the roles of the family or our definition of marriage, those things that are in the news and big and why are Christians doing these things. The strangest thing by human standards that we believe is that bodies that are put in the grave will come back out. That's the very definition. To believe that is the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. If you believe that, then we can accept anything else the Bible says. Jesus is our hope. Because through him, we will be raised again to new life. Friends, is he your hope? Do you hope in him? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder, what do you hope in? This book explicitly tells us not to set our hope on riches, which are fleeting. They can't give you what you really need anyway. Friends, don't hope in your health. That's the one thing you're guaranteed to lose. Hope in Christ. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2 of this book, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Friends, put your hope in Christ. He is the loving Savior. He is the one who has come to die on the cross to take the penalty we deserve, and through him we will be raised again to new life. And all those who believe in him will never be put to shame. And friends, if you have that hope, it should lead to quiet, meek boldness, which is exactly what Timothy needed for his role as a pastor in the church. And that's what you need to live our lives. When we have this hope, that means that there is nothing in ourselves that we have to prove. So we're not loud and showy. But at the same time, our hope is not anything in this life. So therefore, nobody can take it away from us. And that means we never cower in fear. We don't get intimidated. We have this great balance of neither having to assert ourselves very loudly nor needing to run and hide. That's what the hope does for us. Notice the final verse in this section, and we'll conclude. Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, a standard greeting back in Paul's time would have been peace. That's what they would have said. Peace. I come in peace. Letters would begin, peace to you. But Paul, in his normal uh, introduction, changes it a little bit and says grace and peace. That's because Paul knows the only true peace comes from God, and no one can have peace with God without the grace of Christ. Paul says, by grace you have been saved. It is through grace that we have peace with God. So grace and peace, Paul normally writes. But in this letter in particular, Paul adds a third, mercy. Grace, mercy. Mercy and peace. Mercy in biblical terms is what people need when they're feeling really beaten down in life. It's in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament how they translate the word that, that comes through in our Bibles as the word loving kindness. God's loving kindness is what the people in the Psalms cling to as their only hope. The psalmist writes, I cling to your mercy. Paul says, In this passage, Paul is writing to say, hey, he is just clinging to his mercy too. He says, I received mercy for this reason, 
that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe. Friends, if God is not merciful, we're sunk. We have nothing. But God is merciful. So we're not sunk. And we have everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the mercy and grace that we have in Christ. We pray that he would loom large in our minds as the great Savior. And you, Father, as as our hope. Our hope and our Savior in Jesus Christ is the same thing. You have worked to bring us this great redemption in Christ. Let us fear you and obey you and trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.